0: I'm Monica Lopez, and this week on Making Contact, we bring you the story of Lester Ramos, a trafficked Filipino migrant-turned-organizer from the Rework podcast and the UCLA Labor Center. The story is told in his own words. And later we'll hear from an expert on Filipino migration, Dr. Robin Magalet-Rodriguez, who will talk to us about the circumstances in the Philippines and the United States that drive Filipinos to work abroad.
1: I was full of hope. Uh, I said, here it begins. I need to start working immediately because I have a lot of debt in the Philippines. Then when I arrived in Tennessee, I found out there was no job.
2: Trafficking. So when you think about trafficking, lots of images come to mind. You think about something that's far away, something that's hidden, secretive and something that happens to somebody else. But it turns out that labor trafficking is one of the most common forms of trafficking, forcing people to work through the use of force, fraud, or coercion. Who
0: does this happen to? And
2: how does it happen? This is Rework. I'm Sabah Wahid. And I'm Stephanie Ratopper. Today on Rework, Seth Hernandez-Roquilio brings us this story about Lester Ramos, who shares his journey from the Philippines.
3: Alam mo naman sa Pilipinas ang option mo para gumanda buhay mo, tatlo lang eh.
1: You know, in the Philippines, there are only three options for a better life. To win the lottery, which is almost impossible. Your chances are like 0.00 something to join networking schemes so you can get rich. But mostly with those schemes, only those who are on top get rich. And three, to work abroad.
4: Lester is from Cavite in the Philippines. When his father abandoned the family, his mother left Lester under the care of his grandparents. They raised him as their own child. Lester grew up in poverty and could barely afford to pay for school. But he
3: still had big dreams for his future. I
1: always said that I wanted to be a writer. I really wanted to inspire other people. I wanted to write adventure stories, create a story that has an impact on people. Every story would have a lesson to motivate them in life. I wanted to create characters who could be recognized and
4: remain in the minds of the people. As a kid, Lester peddled goods in the street. Later, he worked at a church to pay for his high school studies. But paying for college
3: was much more difficult..
1: Many people say Filipinos are lazy, and that's why they are poor. They prefer to just stand around instead of persevering in life. Many want to get out of poverty. What's lacking is opportunity. It wasn't easy for me when I got married
4: because I started from scratch. So, I just worked hard, and then we had two kids. Lester started off in construction and then in 1995, got a job in manufacturing. He rose up in the ranks from operator to unit leader to staff, and finally, material controller. But even higher up, he still struggled to support his family.
3: Even
1: if I had a better job compared to others, it was still not enough for groceries, for monthly expenses. My balance was usually negative. The earnings from regular jobs, it all goes to food. (laughs) My ATM card never stayed in my wallet. It was always at the pawn shop, every time. We had to borrow money, even to pay for our debt. So one time, it happened that my son saw that our neighbor had a new bike. He tried to borrow the bike and touched it. So the owner of the bike pushed him. My son got a cut. I was just arriving from work when I saw my son crying because of his cut. He said, Papa, I want a bike. I said, my child, that's not ours. In my mind, I was thinking, what kind of a father am I?
3: that I can't give
1: what my son wants. Because you know, for fathers, it's an achievement for us to be able to give our children what they want. Since then, I said, I don't want my life to be like this. I said to myself, I will always find a way to give them what they want. That's when I started thinking about going abroad.
4: the more he thought about it, the more he realized how limited his options were in
3: the Philippines. Whenever
1: they can benefit, the Philippine government will side with the big businesses, such as the foreign investors who start their businesses in the Philippines, where they can pay workers less. I really couldn't find hope to become better off in the Philippines, so I thought, I'll go abroad. I started looking at the newspapers and other places, but it was always nothing. I wouldn't get accepted. One time, my friend said that he was applying to go to New Zealand. I had a day off then, so I went with him. Unfortunately, when we got there, they were looking for someone with experience in molding. I didn't have experience in molding, so I wasn't accepted. I told my friend that I'll just wait outside.
3: While waiting,
1: I saw an advertisement for a material controller in the US. It was in the same building on the second floor. I said, Ah, material controller, that's my profession, so maybe they will accept me. So I entered, inquired, and they told me that in Illinois, I can be a lumber stacker. So I applied. There was an initial fee of $500. I had to borrow money from my sibling who worked in South Korea as an entertainer. The owner interviewed me, then gave me a briefing on the possible expenses. And then I had to do a medical exam. After the exam, they said they will call me. Uh, This is the story of how I applied to go to America. This happened in 2009. June and July came, and they never called me. So I went to the agency to follow up. When I got to the agency, they said the visa quota for the United States was reached. So I would have to wait until next year. I just thought to myself, I got robbed the $500,
4: which is quite a lot of money. Lester had almost given up. And then one day, he got a call back from the agency.
3: But September 11, 2009, ko ng agency.
1: On September 11, 2009, the agency called me and asked me to report to them because they had an offer for me. There was a visa that would allow me to work in Tennessee, but what they wanted was for me to ship from a material controller to an amusement park worker in Tennessee. If it was possible for me to give a processing fee, they would schedule an appointment at the U.S. Embassy. They asked me for maybe about $2,000 to pay for our employer in the U.S., for our accommodation, insurance, etc. So that time, I really didn't have any money. My sibling had some jewelry, so I brought all of them to a pawn shop.
4: Lester paid the fees and scheduled an appointment with the U.S. Embassy. And after all that, he made it through. But then the agency told him that it would be an additional $2,000 for the plane ticket. At this point, with no one else to borrow money from, Lester took out a loan through a lending agency. Even though he had to take on debt, Lester felt the opportunity was worth it.
3: I was full of hope. I said,
1: here it begins. I need to start working immediately because I have a lot of debt in the Philippines. I have debt from my sibling, from my friend, from the lending agency.
4: So Lester packed his bags, said goodbye to his family, and took his first ever plane trip to the United States. After hours on the plane, he finally arrived in Tennessee. Looking around, America was not what he had imagined.
3: Ito ba yung America? Kasi sa Pilipinas, pag nanonotain ng movie, nang ano? From movie, from New York, from ano? building. Para akala ko walang lupa purong cemento lahat purong building ganon. When I arrived
1: here in America, I was really shocked. Is this America? Because in the Philippines, when we watch movies, they are in New York. I thought there was no dirt streets, only cement, only buildings. It was as if I was not in America, that I was in a province in the Philippines. Then when I arrived in Tennessee, I found out that there was no job. They said the ski resort was not open yet. So... They said they will bring us to Alabama to get training. So the next day, the following morning, they put us in a van going to Alabama. The trip was eight hours. There were nine of us. After the first four hours, we stopped because we were hungry, because we didn't have breakfast. We stopped at a fast food place. We thought they were going to buy us food. But they only bought food for themselves. Many of us didn't have pocket money because the agency told us that we didn't need to bring pocket money because when we arrived, we can work immediately Uh, and even with one dollar, they said we can buy a hamburger. What we ended up doing is whoever had some bought something and we all shared it. But at that time, I felt it did not feel right. First, a job, it didn't seem to be true. Then the first personnel of the employer bought food only for themselves. So I said, there seemed to be something wrong. After four hours, they brought us to an abandoned house where there were no uh, furnitures, no utensils, bahay, no kitchen stuff. Gamit, it was totally abandoned. They ala, left ala, us there for three days. We stayed there without anything. So we went out. We bought a rice cooker. We had rice, canned goods with us. So we used those for three days. We cooked so all of ma it in a rice cooker because there was nothing else. It was cold in Alabama. It was October. We didn't have anything, we only had jackets. The house didn't have comporters. We slept on the floor and it was very cold.
3: We were in that
1: condition for three days. After three days, they came back and then they put us in different places in Alabama. Three of us ended up in Perhope, Alabama in a house there. The good thing was that there was a Filipino living in the house where they brought us. I talked to them and asked if we can borrow some money. It was like, you just met them and you're already borrowing money because we really didn't have any food.
4: All of this took place before they even knew where they were going
3: to work. Then they just
1: showed us where we were going to work. At Wendy's. After two days we got a call from Wendy's for us to fill out an application form. We probably walked for three hours because we didn't know the place. We were getting lost.
3: When we got to Wendy's
1: they gave us a schedule and in the schedule we had broken time. Three times a day we had a shift in the morning, a shift in the afternoon and one at night. When my shift ended I couldn't just go home because it was parked. I would just wait outside Wendy's for my next shift. Mostly, I would be in Wendy's for about 12, 14 hours, but they were only paying us for five hours of work.
3: That was my schedule. So
1: Most of the time, I would go home by myself. It would already be dark. There were no streetlights. Once, a dog ran after me.
4: Lester doesn't know why Wendy's was the site of a trafficking scheme. Maybe it was a mix-up, and the traffickers meant for the workers to go to another site. Or maybe the confusing information was the plan all along. In any case, to any customer walking into that Wendy's in Alabama to buy a burger, Lester would look like any other employee. But for him, something else was going on. The people that brought Lester were taking a cut. They only came by the house to drop off checks for the workers. Lester was earning $450 each month. 300 of that went to the
3: lending agency. So, what did we get to my family? Uh, So, what was left for my family? Uh,
1: My family was going hungry, and then I didn't pay for my debt because it only goes to the lending agency. And then I heard that all those sponsored by our employer were denied by immigration because they didn't need foreign workers in Alabama. So I got scared. I talked to our employer, their, their personnel. I asked if there was any hopes of renewing our papers. They told us to find someone else to sponsor us. It was a crisis during that time. We didn't know anything about Alabama. We didn't see any Filipinos. How could we apply and look
4: for someone to sponsor us? It was hard. The work was grueling and it was isolating. It started to take a toll on Lester. He probably wasn't going to find a job in Alabama, And he didn't even have the connections to find a job someplace else. This is labor trafficking. Globally, the International Labor Organization estimates that there are 20.1 million people trapped in forced labor in industries including agriculture, construction, domestic work, and manufacturing. One day, Lester saw on social media that someone he knew lived in Miami. He had a spark of hope maybe this was a way out.
3: He called his friend and it turns out that there was a job for him. My
1: problem became how to get to Miami. I talked personally to the Wendy's manager and filed my resignation. He said I couldn't do it, that I was not allowed to work in other places because I'm supposed to stay with my employer. He said if I work somewhere else, they will deport me.
3: They
1: said that wherever I am in America,
3: they will locate me. So I was scared. I take the risk, no matter what happened. I took the risk and said
1: that I will leave no matter what happened. I told them that I will take the Greyhound. They said they will find me at the Greyhound bus. But I went online and bought a ticket. To Miami.
4: Even though Lester escaped his trafficking situation, things outside weren't exactly easy. When Lester initially escaped Alabama, he ended up becoming undocumented. And because of his status, he had to accept these grueling work conditions. He was stocking food in a warehouse in Miami where he would go back and forth from the sweltering heat to an ice-cold freezer. Then as a caregiver, he often had to work shifts that were nearly 24 hours, six days a week.
3: That's the thing,
1: because I lived in Pierce. I live in that condition where I thought that I didn't have rights because I didn't have papers. That
4: I didn't have the right
1: to refuse what my boss asked me to do.
4: After all that happened to him, Lester was reluctant to trust anyone. Until one day, a friend told him about a place where he could get help. We were hesitant because we didn't want to reveal our
1: status, that we were undocumented, and we were afraid to trust anyone.
3: Actually, the
1: first time I was interviewed by the Filipino Migrant Center, frankly speaking, I did not give them my real address because I was scared. But when I got the telephone number of Joanna, I called her and talked to her for the first time. I saw her sincerity that she wanted to help us. That time, I really cried. I begged for her help. So she scheduled a meeting with us at the FMC office. So we went. There we found out that we were trafficking victims and that we could apply for a T visa. I found out through the Filipino Migrant Center that because the contract they gave me was not followed, that the promised job for me was not real, and I paid a large amount to the agency, and there was still no work for me. That's where I found out that that is also human trafficking.
4: Lester's experience inspired him to get more involved with the Filipino Migrant Center, or as he calls it, FMC.
3: to may sa FMC. I want to spend my day off at FMC kasi They helped me to process
1: my papers I said, if there's anything I can do to help FMC I want to spend my day off at FMC In return for what they did for us I want to help other people Who had the same experiences as me That's where I started So we started to organize We talked to those whom FMC helped Or other workers I knew To be permanent members of FMC Then from five members, maybe it is now about 25, 30 members. Tomorrow, we will launch our own chapter as Migrante South Bay Orange County. That's why my fear disappeared. Because at least now, I am organizing
4: workers. Lester still thinks about writing stories. But his experience as an overseas Filipino worker has shifted his perspective.
3: Back then,
1: I wanted to write adventure stories. I wanted to create stories from imagination. Now, I don't have to just create something. Now, I want to expose what is really happening, what people don't know. From the Philippines to here in America, Filipinos in America, Filipinos in the Middle East, and what can people do to change the system? to change their way of life.
0: Lester Ramos' story was produced by Seth Hernandez Ronquillo for Rework. Dr. Robin Magalet-Rodriguez is a professor and the department chair of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Davis. She is the author of several books, including Migrants for Export, How the Philippine State Brokers Labor to the World. So, Dr. Rodriguez, thank you for joining us on Making Contact.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: We just heard earlier in the program from Lester Ramos about his experience as a trafficked worker to the U.S. from the Philippines. You know, He secured a job through a company in the Philippines, and then when he arrived, nothing was as he expected. How unique is an experience like Lester Ramos's?
2: Unfortunately, it's not unique at all. This is a common experience for many recent Filipino migrants to the United States, uh, which is really, as in Lester's case, his point of contact is less the Philippine government and really these agents, but the very existence of the Philippine government as a kind of labor brokerage state is what then makes it possible for these industry actors to then come in and prey on Filipinos in the Philippines who are looking to just earn a livelihood for their families. You mentioned
0: the Philippines as a brokerage state. Could you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that?
2: Well, what I argue in the book is that the Philippines has emerged as this labor brokerage state. And by that, I mean that there are literally many government offices whose purpose is to market, mobilize, and help facilitate the out-migration of low-wage Filipino and Filipina workers around the world. Now, it's really important to point out that what emerges in the 1970s as this labor brokerage apparatus actually has its roots in the U.S. colonial labor system that the United States established during the colonial period which ran from 1898 to 1946 in the Philippines. So a lot of the kind of institutional structures that helped organize that early colonial labor migration system end up becoming sort of the precursors for what under the Marcos administration becomes the labor brokerage state or what I call the labor brokerage state. And that's an apparatus that has continued to this day part of the goal is to
0: make money, send money home to support their families, right? As far as the remittances go from people who are sending money who are working here back to the Philippines, what kind of a contribution is that to the Philippine economy?
2: It's a massive contribution. In the 80s, the Philippines already was considered one of the most structurally adjusted in the world, um, which essentially means an alignment of The Philippine economy in ways that ultimately meet the kinds of objectives and parameters set by the Washington Consensus. And so that has meant divestment, for example, in basic social services, education, healthcare, infrastructure, among other things, also to basically help facilitate. Uh, foreign investment in the country, right? So what does that mean for everyday Filipino families? Is that housing, food, education, healthcare, all of this comes at tremendous cost. And so this is why people are forced to leave. In addition to that, because you've had a country that's been sort of primed to export labor for, you know, and if we date this all the way back to the American colonial period for over a century, right, right, Um, That's also kind of shifted and had deep impacts on how people imagine their futures, that somehow there is no future to be had in the Philippines, and the only future that's possible is somewhere else. Um, And in fact, part of the promotion of labor export by the Philippine state is precisely to kind of try to quell the kind of militant, uh, kind of progressive and radical organizing that's happening in the Philippines from the trade union movement, of course, peasant movements, indigenous people's movements, the women's movement, um, and others. So these contradictions, you know, make kind of political crisis really always just under the surface in the Philippines. And so migration in some ways kind of is the salve, right, that kind of keeps things sort of calm. But I don't know that that's sustainable, you know, under the Rodrigo Duterte administration, for instance. I think that more and more people are seeing through the populism.
0: I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit here and ask about the, the sort of organizing that's been happening to help on behalf of people who've been trafficking victims in the U.S. and, and in the Bay Area. I understand that you're also working on some organizing efforts yourself.
2: I have been working particularly with uh, different chapters of migrante here in Northern California. Migrant workers are sort of fighting for their rights in the countries where they're working and living, but simultaneously engaged in supporting progressive change at home in the Philippines. And how has that worked out? Every time there has been kind of effective transnational mobilization, uh, migrant workers have really been able to kind of get things done. There are some new bills that are being introduced too in the state um, assembly around the better regulation of foreign recruitment agencies in the state of California. A lot of Filipinos are also very active in the California Domestic Workers Bill of Rights and are active in that as well. So I think all of the organizing has really been effective in being able to expand the sorts of rights migrants are entitled to in the United States, while also really keeping the Philippine state accountable and having to force the Philippine state to have to really examine its emigration policies.
0: Dr. Robin Magalit-Rodriguez spoke with me from the University of California at Davis. And that'll do it for this week's episode. Special thanks to Anita Johnson for engineering assistance. Special thanks to Stephanie Ritaper, Sabah Wahid, Lynette Luna, Vina Hampampur, Nathan Moore, and Seth Hernandez-Ronquilio from Rework, which is produced from the UCLA Labor Center and KPFK. Voice-over dubbing by Johan Diel. Transcript translation provided by Hiazmin Saturai. For the rest of the Making Contact team, I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.